48K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Todd Harding. Tonight's headlines. Beijing and Hong Kong hit out at the latest moves by the Trump administration to target the SAR. The city reports two more coronavirus deaths and the New York Times shuns Hong Kong over the national security law. Both the central and SAR governments have slammed the United States for signing the Hong Kong Autonomy Act into law. Beijing has vowed retaliatory sanctions on American individuals and entities after President Donald Trump signed an executive order ending Hong Kong's preferential treatment with Washington over the new national security law here. The Hong Kong government, for its part, accused Washington of brutally intervening in China's domestic affairs. It also says it will coordinate with the country's efforts to hit back at the US so American hegemony won't have its way. New People's Party chairwoman Regina Yip weighed in as well. She says the new law would affect US visa applications for Hong Kong people, academic exchanges and certain tax arrangements. But she played down the impact on the city's status as an international finance centre. The impact on Hong Kong as a financial services center is limited, and I don't think there will be any impact on the Hong Kong US dollar linked exchange rate. There are no direct measures affecting that, and I expect countermeasures to be adopted by the central authorities and Hong Kong government. I think these measures will be counterproductive in the sense that they will only end up reducing the US influence in Hong Kong. Turning now to COVID-19, Hong Kong has reported two more coronavirus deaths, raising the number to 10. The latest victims were a 90-year-old woman who was a resident of an elderly care home in Siwan Sun at the centre of a recent outbreak and an 89-year-old man with underlying illnesses. Meantime, the Centre for Health Protection reported 14 new local infections with 37 more pending confirmation. Wendy Wong has more. The COVID-19 outbreak in Hong Kong continues to spread as seven more people have come down with the disease via unknown sources, including a housewife in Chi Wan Shan, a Trimun resident and a part-time taxi driver. Dr. Chuan Shukwan of the Centre for Health Protection said authorities have been conducting more than 10,000 COVID-19 tests each day recently and priority will be given to certain groups of people. She said she understood the public was very concerned but appealed for the patients if they're waiting to be tested. We will give priority to those with symptoms and those who are admitted to hospitals and those who have symptoms and attended doctors. But we, we also uh, give priority to those buildings who have more than one unit uh, with unlinked cases. Among the latest patients is a customs officer who tested positive in preliminary tests. An officer from the Food and Environmental Hygiene Department has also contracted virus, believed to be from her husband, who is a previously confirmed case. Dr. Chuan said it's not surprising to see cases emerge at government departments when there's a community outbreak. I understand we have um, some workers in the um, government, but it's just like the, the, the workers in other buildings. I mean, in the private companies and other um, areas, there are also cases. So this is expected. So um, I think if possible, employers may consider to allow their employees to stay at home to work. Some eateries at the centre of the outbreak have also seen more infections, including a cook who works at Windsor Restaurant in Chi Wan Shan and two of her family members. And a man has tested positive for the virus after his wife, who works at a Café de Coro outlet in Choi Hong, was confirmed with the infection earlier. And there are five cases linked to overseas travel. There are two seamen and two helpers from the Philippines and a flight attendant who flew in from India. 
The New York Times says it's moving its digital news hub from Hong Kong to South Korea as a result of Beijing's national security law for Hong Kong. In an email to staff, the paper said there was uncertainty about what the new rules would mean for its operation and its journalism. The move to Seoul will affect about a third of the employees in the Hong Kong office. Jane Worthington, the Sydney-based director of the International Federation of Journalists, Asia and Pacific, told RTHK she believes other news outlets will follow suit. I'd say it's highly likely, you know, in the coming months. You know, it's only been a few weeks. What concerns me that, you know, it's only been a, a week, a week and a half since um, the security law was passed. And when you have a major player like the New York Times making a decision like this, others will look to that and consider their own future in, in that space. I mean, the, the greatest tragedy is for media in Hong Kong. You know, this has always been a bastion for independent media, for free speech. But withdrawal from that space is a huge concern. You're listening to RTHK. The time's exactly five minutes past 11. The chief executive says her priority in the next two years is to get Hong Kong back on track after the violence in the past year. Here's Timmy Sung. In an interview with state media, Xinhua Carrie Lam said after the social unrest last year, Hong Kong people need to deepen their understanding of one country, two systems. She said for the remaining two years of a five-year term, the focus will be on restoring order out of chaos and help people to get the fundamentals right. But Mrs Lam admitted that progress would not be seen right away. She made it clear change must start with education, not just in schools, but also in the family, media and society overall. On the national security law Beijing imposed on Hong Kong about a fortnight ago, Mrs Lam said it's timely and necessary, and people will find out over time that there's no need to worry at all. An organiser of the pro-democracy camp's primary poll last weekend has announced he's ending all links with the exercise, citing warnings from Beijing that it may have violated the new national security law. Aunok Hin, a former lawmaker, apologised to supporters for his decision, saying while the organisers are convinced the poll was perfectly legal, those in power appear to think otherwise. Two authors from Beijing tried to announce that the primary election is uh, somehow illegal in that sense. If we are in a normal society, I think uh, we can uh, persuade each other by reason. But as we know that, the society is extremely abnormal, and it is not the days had to persuade others. Uh, so I think the brutality may come to me, and that is part of the reason why I decided to leave the primary elections duties. The chairman of LegCo's Public Accounts Committee, Abraham Sheck, says he feels sad that government departments fail to learn lessons from mistakes committed by their colleagues. He said his committee has looked into 21 subjects and saw the same pattern of poor governance over and over again. Maggie Ho has more. Summing up the Public Accounts Committee, or the PAC's work in the past four years, Mr. Sheck said the committee had made a lot of recommendations on how to improve governance in their reports. Although the Chief Secretary, Matthew Zhang, had promised that relevant departments would take heed of the committee's advice, Mr. Sheck said those not involved in their inquiries never bothered to make reference to the recommendations, resulting in similar mistakes made in many other departments. We make recommendations, and every time when we make recommendations, the CS stood up and defend government's department to the extent that they would learn from those lessons, but those lessons have not been learned. Billions of dollars have been wasted in terms of contract administration, 
organization structure, poor governance, all these are common re repetitions of a lot of cases that we have studied. Mr. Shek singled out the problem at the Hong Kong Football Association and what he sees as the government's poor oversight. The association's management was described by the PAC as appalling and inexcusable. The FA, which is responsible for developing football in the city, received more than $34 million in funding between 2017 and 2018 alone. Mr. Sheck said the PAC's inquiry, based on a director of audit report, founded an internal audit committee that was supposed to review the association's use of funding had not been formed at all between 2015 and 2019. This is ridiculous. The Hong Kong community and local football fans have high expectation of HKFA to raise the standard of football in Hong Kong, as well as the ranking of Hong Kong football teams. However, the committee consider the HKFA overall achievement have been to the best and to be described as disappointing. And in this regard, it reflects the administration had failed to closely monitor HKFA overall's performance. The PAC also expressed alarm and strong resentment over how the Sports Federation and Olympic Committee's athlete selection for international games was conducted. For example, Mr. Sheck said unannounced criteria were considered for the selection for the 2018 Asian Games in Indonesia. Most people have been ordering a lot more takeout than usual over the past few months as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. And that's perhaps why complaints against food delivery platforms have surged. The Consumer Council's received 170 such complaints over the first half of the year, a three-year high. The Council's Chief Executive, Gilly Wong, says there's room for improvement. The food order platform, they have to substantially strengthen their operational strength as well as their customer service delivery. On the other hand, for consumers, you have to be really guarded about this kind of order. We hope when you place this kind of order, you have to look into every step very carefully and also all the terms and conditions, making sure that you, know, you keep all the record as well. In case of dispute, you, know, you can have all the evidence for you to help you to seek for redress. China says the British government's decision to exclude the telecoms giant Huawei from its 5G mobile networks has severely undermined trust and that it will take all necessary steps to protect its interests. Beijing says the ban was about politics, not national security, and all Chinese firms should pay attention to the increased risk of operating in the UK. Hua Chunying, a spokeswoman for the foreign ministry, suggested the British market was not now transparent. This is not about one company or industry, but about the United Kingdom at all costs politicizing commercial and technical issues. It is also about China facing major threats in its investment security in the UK. It also concerns our confidence in whether the British market can maintain its openness, fairness and non-discriminatory nature. The Trump administration has reversed a plan to force foreign students whose courses were to be taught solely online in the new semester to leave the country. It follows legal action by a number of U.S. universities. Here's the BBC's Gary O'Donoghue. 
This is a 180-degree U-turn on the part of the administration and an embarrassment given the policy was only announced eight days ago. Several high-profile institutions, such as Harvard and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, were challenging the policy and before the court case began, a judge in Boston, where the case was being heard, said the parties had agreed the status quo would be reinstated. The Trump administration was facing a welter of criticism over the move, not just from universities, but also from tech companies and state governments. A new study just published shows that the world population is likely to shrink after mid-century. The study predicts that the global population will reach only 9 billion by the end of this century, or about 2 billion people fewer than the total predicted by UN projections. So why is that? A question put to Professor Stein Emil Volset from the University of Washington School of Medicine, who's behind the project. Our difference all comes from the fertility estimates. We project that women will have fewer children than the United Nations does. And this declining trends in fertility is, going, is ongoing uh, all across the world. At the moment, the world, we have about 100 countries that uh, experience so-called sub-replacement fertility. That means that the number of women at the moment is less than 2.1 children per woman, which is the level that's needed to, to sustain the population at, at current levels. And in 2100, we actually see that number of countries will increase from 100 today to 180 countries in 2100. It's a very huge shift. To sports now, Chelsea got a boost in their hopes to qualify for the Champions League next season by edging out Norwich City at Stamford Bridge. Olivier Giroud's header just before half-time secured a 1-0 victory for Frank Lampard's team. That was OK. Listen, I, I shouldn't I shouldn't make a baby joke because at this stage of the season, as we've seen in the last four hours, results are critical and we, 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 di we didn't concede any chances of a big note for them to let them score a goal. We created a few ourselves. We get our one goal. Maybe we could do more. We can be a bit better with our quality. You know, it, it was OK and professional would be probably a word. I want more, but that can wait. I think we, it, where we are at at the moment um, as a team and the position we're at in the table, three points is everything tonight. In Italy, Atalanta are looking good for Champions League football next season. They went second in the Serie A with an emphatic 6-2 win over Brescia. The Croatian midfielder Mario Pasalic scored a hat-trick. Atalanta moved above Lazio and Inter to go within six points of the leaders Juventus. A reminder of our top stories tonight, Beijing and Hong Kong hit out at the latest moves by the Trump administration to target the SAR. The city reports two more coronavirus deaths and the New York Times shuns Hong Kong over the national security law. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. The New York Times is to move some staff working at its bureau in Hong Kong to the South Korean capital, Seoul. It said the new national security law here has created uncertainty and insecurity for its staff. Anna-Marie Evans asked Jane Worthington, the Sydney-based director of the International Federation of Journalists, Asia and Pacific, what her thoughts were on the move by the New York Times. I mean, look, the reality is it's, it's not 
surprising. You know, media companies, like many media operations, including the media advocacy groups, have been looking at this situation for a number of years. It's now become a reality for the media companies that it's now becoming increasingly dangerous to maintain operations solely out of Hong Kong. I see it as a sort of safety reaction or, or a response to the security law that they feel that they've got to protect themselves against the unknown possibility. You know, the IFJ has been fielding calls from journalists across the region from many different countries asking advice of what should they do and the the fact right now is no one can be really sure of any security in that space. You know, in the last year we've seen a huge number of arrests of journalists. You know, we had one, uh, IFJ recorded one in the in the decade prior and we've had 29 journalists arrested since June last year. And th those journalists that are being arrested are, are all from private media. They're all from independent organisations. And so, and the IFJ's affiliate in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Journalists Association, its own research among journalists has found that 72% of journalists are uneasy about working in Hong Kong. So it's, it comes as absolutely no surprise that international media and particularly US media um, in light of the stash that's going on between the US and China are feeling uncomfortable and, and need to take protective measures so that they are in the region and still reporting but not being left at the mercy of unknown forces. So do you think other international news outlets will follow what the New York Times is doing? I'd say it's highly likely, you know, in the coming months. You know, it's only been a few weeks. What concerns me that, you know, it's only been a, a week, a week and a half since um, the security law was passed. And when you have a major player like the New York Times making a decision like this, others will look to that and consider their own future in, in that space. I mean, the, the greatest tragedy is for media in Hong Kong. You know, this has always been a bastion for independent media, for free speech. But withdrawal from that space is a huge concern. Now, what are the challenges, would you say, facing international news outlets now operating in Hong Kong? Well, you have to wonder, like, you know, how much will they begin to temper coverage? to stay in the space. So you question how fearless can you be if, if there is the threat that you could be raided or journalists arrested. You know, they, there is a duty of care to journalists in that space. I mean, the New York Times has said it's not leaving, that it's not withdrawing altogether. It's more, I, I would say, it's more a, a risk strategy, a security, that they, they're saying we're not going anywhere, we're just trying to stay it, as, and 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 I guess make a sensible move to protect reporting in this region. Now, I mean, there's been withdrawal of media and media advocacy groups to other spaces in the region, to Taiwan, to Japan, and now, and, you know, obviously now Korea. So, I mean, you know, it's a strategy that both media advocacy groups, activists and, and media companies are going to have to take. But what for the journalists in Hong Kong? They can't leave. This is the, the space that they've been fighting and defending um, so strongly, particularly in the last year. A new rule requiring passengers on public transport to wear a face mask is now in force. But getting people to comply and enforcing the regulation could be tricky. Jimmy Choi has the story. Under the new regulation, all passengers must wear a mask on public transport, as well as within the paid area of MTR stations. Anyone found guilty of breaching it could be fined up to $5,000. Are people complying with the new rule? We spotted a passenger who wasn't wearing a mask while transferring from a bus to another vehicle. 
She says she didn't have a mask on because she just finished her meal, insisting she had been wearing one on a bus. The woman promptly put her mask back on. In Chinwan, an elderly woman did not wear her mask properly while waiting for a bus. The mask was hung to just one of her ears, leaving her face uncovered. She did point out to us that the bus hasn't arrived yet. Enforcing the new rule also proves to be challenging. This driver says he's worried that some passengers may refuse to comply and that it would be difficult to force them to. But he welcomes the new rule, saying it would make people understand that wearing a mask is necessary. Kowloon Motorbus says it has issued new guidelines for the drivers to deal with situations where passengers refuse to follow the new regulation. It says drivers could ask passengers to get off the bus or refuse to let them go on board if they insist on not wearing a mask after being told to do so. KMB also says drivers could ask the company to send in staff to help if the situation remains unresolved. The last result would be to call the police. As for taxis, the chairman of the Hong Kong Taxi Council, Hong Wen Tat, says the council has told drivers to put up notices in their caps, reminding passengers to wear a mask. He also says passengers, for their own health and safety, should use cap-hailing apps. He says some of these apps allow them to find out which drivers have taken infection control measures. We have some certification program of the taxi vehicles. If they abide by the uh, rules, for example, they have to of the um, cleansing exercise every day for the compartment and also prepare the sort of disinfection liquid inside the compartment and other disinfection uh, equipment and the driver also compile with our guidelines. Then we'll give them a certification and then you can see the certification in the app. So you can select the driver with the certification. Mr Hong also called on drivers to prepare face masks for passengers who don't have one and to take the initiative to get tested for the virus. The chairwoman of the Hong Kong Public Doctors Association has warned that the government's plan to carry out extensive coronavirus testing on 400,000 high-risk people may end up pushing the city's already strained hospital services to the limit. The government has assigned two Sunjen labs to conduct tests on taxi drivers along with staff at elderly care homes, restaurants and property management firms. Dr Arasina Ma from the Public Doctors Association acknowledged the need for more testing on elderly patients who do not show respiratory symptoms. But she's also told Jimmy Choi that extensive testing could help reveal possibly tens of thousands of asymptomatic infections within the community and the government must be ready to handle the potential surge in cases. I think testing at this stage, we should still target it to the patient with symptoms, patients uh, live in certain areas with outbreaks, patients who have contact with confirmed patients, and maybe patients uh, return from high-risk areas. But for full Hong Kong uh, testing, I'm still uh, a bit conservative about that. What is your biggest worry about this idea? If you test a large number of patients at the same time, Definitely, for this enquiry, you will find 1% to 2% of your testing subject uh, with asymptomatic positive result. So how should you handle it? Of course, you cannot uh, put them all inside the hospital, put them all in the isolation ward. We don't have enough capacity for that. So, but do you have enough um, quarantine facilities for them? If we don't have enough quarantine facilities for them, are you asking them to do the home quarantine? How can you uh, stop them from infected their members? Uh, how about a work arrangement? 
if there is a hundred thousand or even several hundred thousand of Hong Kong people are getting infected, are you asking them all stop for work? I think you should um, put uh, all those measures clear before you do the test. And also, um, people get infected, uh, get tested negative in one time point. They may get tested positive later, uh, maybe a few weeks or a few days later. So, be honest, uh, for high-risk patients or highly suspected patients, usually we don't rely on one single time contact. We will uh, test them repeatedly. So only single time point testing may not tell you the accurate pictures, may even give you a false sense of security. Now we turn to reports that Ethiopia has begun to fill the reservoir of its gigantic Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which has long been a source of dispute with downstream neighbours Egypt and Sudan. Despite several rounds of negotiations, the three countries have been unable to solve key issues on the management of the precious Nile waters. As tense politics continue across borders, BBC correspondents Sally Nabil and Kalkidan Il-Petal visited people in Egypt and Ethiopia respectively to find out what is really at stake. Ethiopia's bustling capital Addis Ababa is a testament to the country's economic growth in the past decade, one of the fastest in the continent. New factories and skyscrapers, more houses, more jobs. And with that growth comes a need for more electric power. But just outside the city is a completely different picture. Tens of millions of Ethiopians still live without access to electricity. Ethiopia's solution is the Grand Renaissance Dam. After almost 10 years of construction, it's now nearly complete. When it's turned on, it will generate around 6,000 megawatts. Officials hope it will power the growing city and the surrounding villages. In one of these villages on the outskirts of Addis called Akako, I meet 42-year-old mother of eight Jifare Girma on her small family farm. We prepare everything using firewood. We cook with firewood. Sometimes we use coal or gas. We have to go to the forest to look for the firewood. It's very tiresome. If we get electricity, we'll be able to use cooking and baking stove. And we'll be clean. We'll have better lives. We're now covered with ash. We're getting poison from smoke. We're wrapped in smoke. Out on his cattle field, I also spoke with Jifari's husband, Lemma Shumi. Like many here, he believes in the dam project so much that he bought government bonds to help fund the construction. He hopes that even a small contribution might provide much-needed electricity for his village. Ethiopian authorities here have promised over the years not to harm downstream countries like Sudan and Egypt. Instead, they have often accused Cairo of trying to maintain arrangements from the colonial era that deny millions of Ethiopians access to electricity. But more than 8,000 kilometers upstream in Egypt, the story is quite different. The BBC's Sali Nabil spoke to farmers who fear for their homes and livelihoods. The farm I'm standing in now might disappear if Egypt's share of the Nile water is to be reduced because of the dam. Egypt wants Ethiopia to guarantee its water supplies won't be touched. For many Egyptians, this is a matter of life and death. On our way here, we've passed by a number of canals. Most of them have dried up. Farmers have been really struggling in recent years with shortages of water, and many are worried their livelihoods could be destroyed if things get worse.
Growing crops in the summertime is a challenge. And while not everyone working in this field has heard about the Ethiopian dam, they can't imagine losing more water in such a dry country. We do not have enough water, especially in summer. During the day, water pumps barely work because the water levels are so low. I do not know what's going to happen if we get even less water. I have only seen one water pump in the massive farmland. Green areas are expected to shrink if water supplies are to go down. Egypt has already restricted growing water-intensive crops like rice and banana. It has accused Ethiopia of acting unilaterally, disregarding the interests of downstream countries. But time is running out for Cairo. The mega dam will significantly reduce Egypt's water supply if filled too quickly. But despite years of negotiations, many technical and legal disagreements remain unsolved. Hussein Abdurrahman is the head of the farmers' union. There is no Egypt without water. We either have water or there is no future for us. Decreasing our water share will kill us slowly. The Nile has always been Egypt's lifeblood. And for those that depend on it, the future is uncertain. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Todd Harding from our newsroom. We all have low points in life that make us feel down and helpless, especially when facing stress, difficult times, and problems we think we can't solve. No matter whether you're facing mental health issues or not, you can spend time with family and friends to chat with them more and be there to listen. Let's visit shallwetalk.hk for more details. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to Joshua Ray Cudero from now until 1 a.m. Mentovani, summertime in Venice.
Oh, there you are. What a beautiful introduction to nostalgia. Summertime in Venice with Mantovani, the one and only Mantovani. Let's move on. Oscar Peterson at the piano. Maybe we could even ask him to sing for us. I cried a tear You wiped it dry I was confused You cleared my mind I sold my soul You bought it back for me And held me up And gave me dignity Somehow You needed me You gave me strength To stand alone again To face the world Out on my own again You put me high Upon a pedestal So high that I can almost See eternity You needed me 